Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for our beautiful worship today. We continue in our Lucan sermon series, and today we're at Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Uh, this is our fourth sermon in the Lucan series. If you've missed one, I hope that you'll watch it online or print it off and read it or listen on a podcast. You can get those at our website at firstamarillo.org. Today we're in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. A lot of our Sunday school classes, Bible study classes, are continuing the conversation from the morning sermon. They're also looking at the, the gospel of Luke. I think that's a, a great thing. The voice. The nervous singer walks out into the bright lights and looks at the backs of four red chairs. This is her one shot at the big time. Turned away from her, the judges cannot see her as they ponder the pitch and the power of the vocalist. Anxiously, their hands hover over a red buzzer. Listening, they wander to themselves. Is the singer old? Is she young? Is she timid? Is she bold? Based on the sound of the voice alone, the voice alone, the judge, Adam Levine, or Blake Shelton, hits his buzzer. His chair spins a 180, and he beholds the singer he has selected based only on the voice. And then he asks himself, will her voice be the voice from the singers this season? Well, as I, I studied this show and because John the Baptist is the voice, I've learned that the Baker household really likes this show. You can imagine that. And I'm told that it goes this way. Dan is in the recliner away from the television. <laughs> he has his hand right over the armchair. And when Dan taps the armchair, Jody spins him around. And Dan sees the voice that he has selected as a voice judge. Well, he could be a good judge on that show and certainly a good coach. Perhaps you have seen The Voice, a popular talent show, but long before The Voice on NBC, there was, look at Luke chapter 3 and verse 4. The voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John is the forerunner to Jesus. He arrives on the scene and he declares in the wilderness, get ready, the Christ is coming. He warns the people that they have to change if they're going to receive the Messiah. What is crooked must be made straight. They must deviate from their well-worn paths of following their own ways and turn and follow God's way like a tiger pouncing on his prey. The prophet pounces upon our wayward path and he proclaims, you must repent. The Christ is coming. He calls them to humiliation. He calls them to repentance. He calls them to confession. He calls them to call upon God to finally receive God's long-awaited salvation. 
What is lacking in their lives must be supplied. And what is too high must be broken, brought down low. Self-satisfaction will do no longer. You remember how we started in this study on Luke. We began with two miraculous births. Elizabeth was barren and elderly, but the angel came and said that she and Zacharias would have a baby boy who would be the forerunner of the Christ, and you shall name him John. Mary, moreover, was a virgin, but the angel Gabriel said that she would conceive and bear a son, and he would be called Jesus. We should not be surprised, therefore, that these two babies now grown up, fast forward a few decades, and now the life of John the baptizer is intertwined with the life of his cousin Jesus as he is the forerunner of the Messiah. Before Jesus takes center stage with his ministry, John takes center stage and gives a clarion call that we must repent. Well, verses 1 and 2 I call setting the stage. Setting the stage. Look at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Setting the stage. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Triconitus, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. And in the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Before Luke tells us about John's commission and ministry, he sets the stage by listing both secular and sacred authorities. What he's telling us here is what God did in the person of Jesus happened in human history. It happened at a specific time when specific rulers were in office. And God steps into history and makes powerless those who are on the who's who's power list of Rome. Well, let's look at them. Tiberius is the first one listed. Now, this is a wonderful reference. Luke's reference to the 15th year of Tiberius is the best piece of information we have in all the New Testament for beginning the ministry of John and thus the ministry of Jesus. Well, Tiberius' co-regency with Augustus started somewhere around A.D. 11 and A.D. 12. And so now we can project that the time that John the Baptist goes to the Jordan River and starts baptizing is A.D. 26 or 27. Now, with Jesus being born around 4 B.C., that's perfect. He's about 30 years of age at this time. The mention of Tiberius' name along with these other Roman rulers reminds us that Rome has a power of the day. The second name, Pilate, you know him a little better, don't you? He's a prefect of Judea from A.D. 26 to 36. That fits with Tiberius' being there around 26. He is responsible for all the aspects of managing the Roman Empire in Judea. He was known for his cruelty and violence. And at AD 37, as far as written history goes, we hear nothing else out of Pontius Pilate. The Herods 
those guys. The first Herod mentioned here is Herod Antipas, who is a son of Herod the Great. If you can just keep the Herod straight in your Bible, you're, you're a scholar. This is a son of Herod the Great, the Herod who slaughters all the babies. He's a tetrarch of Galilee. And he's a tetrarch of Galilee. Remember, we know when Jesus was born because Herod the Great dies in what? 4 B.C. This one begins at 4 B.C. and goes forward to A.D. 29. So he fits in our timetable. Now, tetrarch is a, a big word for petty prince, a petty prince. The second Herod is Philip. He's also a son of Herod the Great, but a little less ambitious than his brothers, and he ruled until A.D. 34. Lysanias. Lysanias, amongst the list, really doesn't seem to fit. He doesn't have the power of the others. In fact, he's out of office in A.D. 37, and, and given his paucity of power, some scholars are surprised that Luke put him on the list. Now, having given us the secular powers that be, now he moves over to the sacred powers that be, Annas and Caiaphas. Well, now, Annas was high priest from A.D. 6 to A.D. 15. He was followed, however, by five sons, one son-in-law, the one mentioned here, Joseph Caiaphas, and maybe even a grandson. So while Caiaphas is a high priest in office at the time of the passion of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, Anna seems to have hand-selected all the high priests to follow him. And so we just had this puppeteering parade of priestliness with Anna being the, Annas being the power behind. Well, we have two insights from this list of names. First, we have the catalog of the corrupt that he gives us. He wants us to know that before the proclamation of John and the presence of the ministry of Jesus, that the powers of the world mean nothing. Turn back to Luke chapter 1 and verse 52. Mary already told you this. Chapter 1, verse 52 and 53. What did Mary sing? He has brought down rulers from their thrones... And exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent away the rich empty handed. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Now we're 2,000 years on the other side of the events. How many would even know the name of Philip or Lysanias? Who would even know the name of Caiaphas or Annas? Who would even know these names of even Pilate? And yet millions upon millions of members of the human race today both know the name of Jesus and the name of John the Baptist. He has turned the power on its head. And secondly, what a master stroke. Luke always writes in the present, leading you to the end, the passion of Jesus. We have now been introduced to four major characters of the passion. You just met Herod. You just met Pilate. You just met Annas. You just met Caiaphas. You now know their names and what they do and who they are and get ready because they're the bad guys at the end of the story. He introduces us to the dark side of the passion early in his gospel. Well, don't miss the most powerful words about John. 
there in verse 4, and the word of God came to John. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 76. What does Zacharias say in his song? His father sang, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. His father, even when he's a baby, knew because of the visit from the angel Gabriel, you will go in front of the Messiah, and you will preach repentance, and you will bring salvation from their sins. No, John the Baptist is not a scribe who brings a new reading to the text. No, he is a prophet, and he preaches. He doesn't write. He pounces like a tiger and tells you you're a sinner. Well, the menu of men of power sets the stage for John the Baptist. And Luke now takes us from the power to the place, out of the palace, and into the wilderness. From the power and to the place, out of the palace, and into the wilderness. Notice what it says there. He came in the wilderness. Now, it was a deliberate prophetic gesture. He went to the wilderness because there was water there, and he could baptize people as they confessed their sins and did a 180. But it was more than that. You remember that ancient Israel sojourned for 40 years in the wilderness, you know that Elijah, the one in whose spirit that John comes, was taken up from the wilderness. You remember that word from Isaiah chapter 40 about the wilderness? A voice calling in the wilderness, Isaiah 40. So while all these guys are sitting on their thrones... The word of God comes to John, not in the palace, but out in the wilderness. And that was a place of a new exodus, a new deliverance from God. Well, verses 3 through 6, he preaches repentance. Verses 3 through 6, he, he quotes Isaiah 40, and he preaches repentance. And he came into all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the word Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, the crooked shall become straight, the rough road smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John's message is clear. Verses 3 through 6, I call preaching repentance. His message is clear. Ancient Israel must repent and seek forgiveness for her sins in order to be ready to receive the Christ, the salvation that God has for them in the presence of Jesus. Now, the word used for John's activity is preach. Another translation would be herald. Another one might be announced. He comes to make an announcement. The announcement is quite unique, that they must be immersed, baptized. It's, it's a humiliating event to proclaim that you're a sinner in the water and go for the washing of your sins. He's getting them ready for that day that Jesus will arrive and say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand in chapter 4. Well, Isaiah, Ezekiel, 
John the Baptist isn't the first one to connect baptism with washing of sins and renewal. What's different about John the baptizer's message is his is not to another people, but to God's people. It might be heard of for a proselyte, someone who wants to be a Jew to be baptized. It was unheard of for a Jew, John the Baptist, to call his fellow Jews to come, say you're wrong, repent, go the river, get washed of your sins. They were being baptized like all other people. His baptism betrays a cleansing of the heart. Oh, there'll be a, a future baptism you'll speak about in a moment of the Spirit and, and the baptism of the church where you die with Christ and you rise with Christ. But this first baptism, this baptism of John in the Jordan is one to say, I'm wrong. I'm a sinner and I need to be washed. Notice what his message is in verse 4. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make ready the way of the Lord. Salvation for John is a journey. It is a way, a way of life, a way of walking. Make ready the way of the Lord. Do you know in the Acts of the Apostles what Christians are called by Luke, our same writer of this gospel? They are called followers of the way. Followers of the way. Make the way for the Messiah. You will become followers of the way of the Messiah. It comes from Isaiah chapter 40. The rough terrain, it's got to be smoothed out. Unrepentant hearts and smoldering sin will not do. The Messiah is here. Make the way straight. What is high must be cut down and what is low must be filled in. Come in humility. Get rid of your sin. The crooked roads must be made straight. And we must, in hum humiliation, cut down the mountains so the Christ will be able to find us. I remember in the summer of 1984, I was just a, a young man. I was there in college in 84, and I remember I was home during the summertime, and I noticed my father was a, a professor of medical technology at Greenville Tech, and I noticed the campus that everything was changing. I mean, it was kind of a, a sleepy community college, but not anymore. All the old signs were taken down and new signs were put up. Everything, the landscape totally changed. In fact, they had buildings that had different colors of bricks at different building phases on the campus. They ripped off perfectly good brick and put up new brick on both buildings so the brick would match. I mean, I have never seen a, a facelift, a tidy up of a campus like this. And so I asked my father seeing the car, who was a professor there of medical technology, I said, what is going on at Greenville Tech? Why are you ripping up all the bushes and putting in new bushes? And why are you ripping the faces off the building and putting up a new face? And why all the new signs? Why all this money? This is crazy. What's going on? He said, Ronald Reagan's coming in the fall. <laughs> and we're getting ready. Really? He'll be there two hours? We're ripping all the bricks off and putting on new brick and putting up new signs and landscaping. What an honor it was for that 
community college to be selected as the university of the state that Ronald Reagan was going to visit. And his arrival was important enough to them that they changed everything for his two-hour visit. I thought, man. And every time I read this passage, if the road is crooked, cut a new road. Make it straight. If it's got dips in it, you better fill it in. If it's got a hill you have to drive over, you cut out the hill. Jesus is coming, the Messiah is arriving, and you must make ready his way. Finally, notice what he says. We have to love this in verse 6. All flesh will see the salvation of God. It's the message of John, though he, he primarily was a prophet to the Jews, it's not just for the Jews, it is for all flesh. And Luke echoes that in his second volume, Acts 28, 28, when he says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. John's dedicated to Israel, but the Gentiles are part of the message too. 3-7 I call fleeing the wrath, fleeing the wrath. Therefore he began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Wow, he's tough, isn't he? How would you like it if I preached a Sunday morning and called you sons of snakes? That's just what he said. You sons of snakes, who told you to show up this morning? Who gave you the clue you need to come and worship and repent? You son of a serpent? That's tough preaching. They saw themselves as sons of Abraham. And he called them sons of snakes. Why are you coming to... Avoid the wrath of God. Luke sees this cosmic conflict between life and death and light and darkness, and he wondered who warned them to come out to flee the wrath of God. Verses 8 and 9, bringing forth fruits. Verses 8 and 9, bringing forth fruits. Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up the children of Abraham. Every time I read that passage, I see John pick, reaching down and picking up a stone and say, don't tell me you're a son of Abraham. God can make sons of Abraham from these stones. That's not what counts. And the axe is ready, laid at the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Their repentance must be the kind that produces authentic fruit. It must be actual. It cannot be fruitless or fake. You cannot be identified by your birth or your covenant heritage. You must have a circumcision of the heart, a true repentance. He's echoing the prophet Isaiah when he speaks about chopping down trees, but what's radical about his message is it isn't the trees of Lebanon he's chopping down, it's the trees of Israel he's chopping down and throwing into the fire. Verses 10 through 14, responding to the call of repentance. Well, John's a hard preacher and the people respond. And, and they say, what shall we do? 
you're telling us to repent. What, what do we need to do? They're nervous. Let the man who has two coats share them with the man who has none. And if you have excess food, share it with the one who is hungry. And then the tax gatherers say, well, what about us? We've been cheating people out of their taxes. What do you want us to do now? And he says, don't collect any more tax than due. And, and the soldiers say, well, what about us? How can we be saved from this, Messiah, this cosmic wrath of God, this coming Messiah? What do we need to do? And he says, quit using your power over people. Quit terrorizing people with your might. A call to repentance. Verses 15 through 18, they mistake John for the Messiah. Is he the one? Is John the Messiah? And he says, as they're wondering, verse 15, if he might be the Christ, oh, I baptize you with water, but there's one who's coming after me that will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. And I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, he says. And he has a winnowing fork. This Messiah that's coming, he will lift up the chaff and the harvest, the fruit, the grain, and the wind will blow the chaff away, and the real fruit will fall to the ground. It's the winnowing fork, he says. That baptism, of course, comes in Luke's second volume, Acts, on the day of Pentecost, when they are possessed by the Spirit, and they speak inhabited by tongues of fire. It is the long-awaited Messiah who will exercise judgment with his winnowing fork, and you must be ready. God, our true character is always revealed by God's judgment. Well, the last two verses, paying the price. The last two verses. But when Herod, now that's Herod Antipas, our first Herod. But when Herod the Tetrarch, that's Herod Antipas, was reproved by him on account of Herodias, his brother's wife, on account of all the wicked things which Herod had done. He added this also to them, that he locked John up in prison. Like Elijah before him took upon Ahab and Jezebel, John takes on Herod and Herodias. And unlike the other gospel accounts, Luke does not give us the sordid details of Herod's horrid sin. But standing in antithesis to John's call to humility and repentance, Herod divorced his wife in order that he could take his brother's wife, Herodias, from him. And we know eventually that John the baptizer is beheaded for preaching boldly against Herod and Herodias. The voice, one crying in the wilderness. The Messiah is coming. Your crooked way of living must be straightened out. Where you are prideful about being a son of Abraham, you need to come wash in the river. You need an act of humility. Where you are haughty, you must be humble. Where you are low and lacking, it must be filled in. You have gotten off of God's path. You are walking your own way. And so John arrives in the wilderness and says, it can no longer be business as usual. And the multitude showed up and said, what do we do? This is a new word, John. What do you want us to do? It's social justice, isn't it? Share clothes with those who are naked. 
I need some real fruit from your repentance. I want you to feed the hungry. And the the tax gatherers, the cheats, say, what do you you want us to do, John? Tell us, tell us. This is scary. This is scary. What do we need to do? Stop cheating people. Only collect the taxes that are truly owed. And and the soldiers, they're scared to death. They work for the wicked Rome. Well, what, what do we need to do, John? What do we need to do? Speak the truth. Stop terrorizing men and women and taking advantage of them with the power of your sword. Stop being bullies. Live honest and humble lives. They heard the word of the voice crying in the wilderness. And they said, what shall we do? Repent in such a way that you bear fruit for the kingdom. I know what the multitude did. I know what the tax gatherers did. I know what the soldiers did that day when they heard the voice in the wilderness. The question is, as we hear the voice in the wilderness, what will we do? Let us pray. Oh, God, what a bold word. To arrive to church this morning and us all be called sons of snakes. Sinners, crooked, high and haughty, going our own way rather than God's way. When we live thusly, we are not ready for the arrival of the Messiah. May we, too, take a journey to the Jordan, be plunged in humility and forgiveness, and bear the fruit of the kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.